So we're talking about families today. And I want to start by telling you the story of a unique family made up of two members, Jim and Sadie. So the first thing you need to know about Jim is that he had some issues he had to deal with. He was diagnosed as bipolar with psychotic tendencies. And what that meant was that every once in a while he would just lose control. He'd get so angry he would punch dents in cars, he'd yell at people on the street, smash windows, do all kinds of destructive things. Now Jim knew this was dangerous and destructive, so he would try to calm himself down when he felt these moods coming on. He'd talk to himself saying, let it go, or calm down, Jim. And sometimes those talks worked. But one time his mood was so bad that he got on the phone, called up a priest, and threatened to kill him. So of course the police arrested Jim and he was put on probation. He knew that any more mistakes might mean he would end up in jail. The next thing you need to know about Jim is that he loved animals. He'd had cats and dogs as pets, but at this point in his life, he was saving up for a baby African gray parrot. I'm so glad one of my friends mentioned their bird during our children's message. So he's saving up for this parrot, and he was talking to anybody he ran into about how much he wanted this baby African gray. Very expensive bird, so he was putting away $100 a month in a savings account. This kind of bird is very expensive, and they're very smart. They can speak, and they even develop their own personalities. They can figure out puzzles. Jim had told just about everyone he knew that he wanted this kind of parrot. And one day at church, a friend mentioned that she knew someone who was selling one for a very low price. So Jim was intrigued by this, and he went to see the bird, and he quickly found out why she was so cheap. She was a mess. She had been pulling out her own feathers, which is something these birds only do when they're extremely stressed out. The person who owned her had not been taking good care of her, and Jim almost decided not to get her. After all, he wanted a parrot that he could raise from a baby, not this disheveled hand-me-down. But as he watched the poor bird, Jim decided he couldn't just leave her there. So maybe you've guessed by now that her name was Sadie. This is the family of Jim and Sadie. So Jim bought her and took her home. He began feeding her regularly, talking to her, and within three days she started to bow her head to him, which meant she was starting to bond. At first, the only thing she would say was, want a beer? And that might give you some insight into her former living conditions. But soon enough, she started to learn from Jim. She would say hello, she would say her name, she would imitate Jim's laugh, and she even started saying, coochie, coochie, coo. And something else interesting happened. Whenever Jim felt one of his moods coming on, he would tell himself, calm down, Jim. And after a while, Sadie started to repeat him, calm down, Jim, she would say. After the first few times it happened, Jim started to realize that it was easier to calm down when he had someone else encouraging him like that, telling him to take it easy, or reassuring him it would be okay, or just saying, I love you, <laughs> making that kissy noise. Jim bought Sadie a cage that he could actually wear as a backpack, and he started taking her with him wherever he went. 
He applied for a permit so that Sadie could be a service animal, like a seeing eye dog, because she really helped keep him calm. And she prevented him from doing these harmful things that would land him in jail. And then one day, Jim felt himself starting to get upset. And before he could say anything, he heard Sadie say, calm down, Jim. He didn't know how, but this African gray parrot had come to know him so well that she could sense when he was getting worked up. One parrot expert said she wasn't surprised by Sadie's behavior. In the wild, parrots who flock together look out for each other and protect each other. The scientists said that Jim and Sadie were a flock of two and that Sadie knew she needed to take care of her flockmate just as he had taken care of her. So the story about Jim and Sadie is the story of an unexpected family. It's a lot like the stories we heard in scripture this morning. Ruth and Naomi, Jesus and the disciples, these are not biological families. They're the unexpected families that God draws together at a crucial moment. Ruth was Naomi's daughter-in-law for 10 years, but I don't know if they truly became family until the tragic deaths of the men that they loved. At that time, women were dependent on men, their husbands or their sons or their fathers to protect them. So logically, the best thing for Ruth to do would be to leave Naomi and, and remarry, which is what her sister Orpah chooses to do. But Ruth, who is, by the way, a Moabite, one of the foreign groups despised by the Israelites, Naomi's people, Ruth just can't leave her mother-in-law. She knows that if she leaves Naomi, Naomi will have no one to look after her. Don't ask me to abandon you, she says, when Naomi tells her to go back home and start over. Then she makes one of the most astonishing promises of loyalty in the whole Bible. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, there I will die and be buried. In other words, Ruth is saying, I'm your family now. You're stuck with me. The quality that Ruth shows to Naomi has a special name in the Bible. The Hebrew word is chesed, which means loyalty, goodness, taking responsibility, caring for others. We don't have a single word in English that covers all the meanings of chesed. It's one of the essential properties of God. In Psalm 31, the writer prays to God saying, let your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Save me in your chesed. We're all called to be part of the human family, the family of God. And Jesus wants to bring everyone into that family. He created a family of sorts with his disciples who were made up of fishermen, religious zealots, accountants, at least one doctor. They spent three years eating together, traveling together, being confused together. They witnessed miracles together. And after all they'd been through, we might find them acting like a more cohesive unit. But instead of that, here's what we see in the story from Luke's gospel. This is the last meal Jesus will eat with the disciples, and he knows it and he tells them so. 
He says he's about to suffer. And rather than worrying about their friend's well-being, the disciples have an argument amongst themselves about who is the best. As if that weren't enough, Jesus tells them that one of them is going to betray him and all the others will desert him. Talk about a dysfunctional family. And perhaps they have every right to be. I get the feeling that left to their own devices, not many of these guys would choose to hang out with each other. Would a pediatrician choose to hang out with a radical revolutionary? Would a fisherman choose to have dinner at a tax collector's house? It doesn't sound likely. And yet these are the people that Jesus chooses to bring together. These are the people he chooses to continue his ministry after his death. These people who fought amongst each other and ultimately deserted him, these are the ones Jesus chooses to make into a family, into his family. About 10 years ago, I worked for as a chaplain for United Methodist Family Services, which is a social service agency that works throughout Virginia to help troubled teens and families in crisis. And in my time there, my definition of the word family changed radically. I want to tell you a story about a typical child that I worked with there. It's not based on any one particular person, but the things that this girl experienced are typical of many of the youth I worked with. Alice grew up with parents, her mom and stepdad, who struggled with addiction. When Alice's stepfather died of a drug overdose, protective services removed her from the house. She was placed with foster parents who felt that what she needed most was strict discipline. They decided the best punishment would be to withhold food, and lock her in her room for days at a time. She was in that home for four months and then was placed with three other families over the course of a year and a half. None of them were prepared for the challenge of working with a young girl who had literally no experience of a loving family. During this time, Alice developed an unhealthy way of coping with her trauma. She began to cut herself. The foster family she was with at that time, the Joneses, they found out about this, and that was how Alice ended up in a 45-day stabilization program for teens in crisis. Counselors there had to gently and skillfully help break down the emotional defenses Alice had developed over a lifetime of being let down by the people who were supposed to take care of her, the important adults in her life. They had to show her that there were people in the world who would provide compassionate, non-judgmental care to her, that rules would be consistent, and that she was worthy of love. To her great surprise, the Joneses welcomed Alice back into, her, into their family. And after a few months, she decided she wanted to be adopted by the Joneses, and they agreed. I always thought there was something wrong with me, Alice said. After a while, I had just lost too many people that I might have cared about. I'd been with too many parents who really weren't. And I wondered if it was too late for me to believe that anyone could really love me. So I decided I wasn't going to let anyone even like me, not even myself. When I met the Joneses, I wasn't going to let them know for even a second that I liked them or that I needed them. But they stayed. They held me in their arms and in their hearts, even when I acted like I didn't want them at all. 
even when I messed up at school, even when I got so mad I broke a window in their house. They held me. And then one day, it wasn't their house anymore. It was our house. And I knew that I was home. Alice didn't expect to end up with the Joneses. Naomi didn't expect to rely on her daughter-in-law for support. Jim didn't expect an African gray parrot to help him with his mental health. The disciples didn't expect to spend the rest of their lives spreading Jesus' message to anyone who would listen. But God is in the business of confounding our expectations. It seems to me that God loves creating these unexpected families. And I believe we are called to join in that effort. Families, all families, require hard work, whether they're biological or not. As the church, I believe we are called to be a model for the world of Jesus' message that we are all part of God's family. Just like Alice and the Joneses, like Jim and Sadie, like Ruth and Naomi and the disciples, we need to look out for each other. If we're going to be part of the same family, the same flock, we need to care for each other. As Jesus says, the greatest among you must become like the youngest. Even I am among you as one who serves. When it gets hard to serve, that's when we have to turn to God, because that's where we'll find the strength to love the people that God has given us, even when they seem unlovable. God is the one who loves us at our worst, who wants us to be part of the family, no matter how much it seems like we don't belong. God is the one who tells us that nothing can separate us from the love that created us. God is the one who says to us, don't ask me to abandon you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and not even death can take you away from me. Not even death can take us away. Friends, this is good news. Thanks be to God. Amen.